Welcome back, listeners. I'm Shayna, and you're listening to Criminal Beauty. Today, we are just going to jump into it. I will be covering the Black Dahlia case. Elizabeth Short was born on July 29, 1924, in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts, the third of five daughters of Chloe and Phoebe May Short. Around 1927, the Short family relocated to Portland, Maine before settling down in Medford, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. This is where she was raised and spent most of her life. Her father built miniature golf courses until the 1929 stock market crash when he lost most of his savings and the family became broke. In 1930, her father's car was found abandoned on the Charlestown Bridge and it was assumed that he had committed suicide by jumping into the Charles River. Believing her husband was deceased, Elizabeth's mother moved with her five daughters into a small apartment in Medford and worked as a bookkeeper to support them. Because Elizabeth had suffered bronchitis and severe asthma attacks, she underwent lung surgery when she was 15. After that, doctors suggested she move to a milder climate during the winter months to prevent worsening respiratory problems. Elizabeth's mother then sent her to spend winters in Miami, Florida with family friends. During the next three years, she lived in Florida during the winter months and spent the rest of the year in Medford with her mother and sisters. She dropped out of Medford High School during her sophomore year, and in late 1942, her mother received an apology letter from Elizabeth's father, who was presumed dead 12 years prior. In that letter, he revealed that he was in fact alive and had and was still living in California. At 18 years old, Elizabeth decided to move to California to live with her father. Everything was fine for a while, but arguments started happening more and more often between them, which resulted in her moving out in early 1943. She ended up moving in with several friends and started working at the base exchange at Camp Cook, now Vandenberg Air Force Base, near Lompoc, and then briefly lived with an Air Force sergeant that had reportedly abused her. She did eventually leave Lompoc in mid-43 when she was moving to Santa Barbara and subsequently arrested for underage drinking at a local bar on September 23rd. Authorities tried to send her back to Medford, but she went to Florida instead and only occasionally visited Massachusetts. She did meet someone while in Florida, a decorated Army Air Force officer named Major Matthew Michael Gordon Jr. at the 2nd Commando Group. He was deployed during World War II and it was reported that he had proposed to her via letter, but sadly died a week before the surrender of Japan. She ended up moving to Los Angeles in 1946, where she went to visit Army Air Force Lieutenant Joseph Gordon Fickling, which she had met while living in Florida. Elizabeth spent the last six months of her life in Southern California, mostly in the Los Angeles area. She had been working as a waitress, and she rented a room behind the Florentine Gardens nightclub on Hollywood Boulevard. She had been variously described and depicted as an aspiring or would-be actress. According to some sources, she did in fact have aspirations to become a film star, though she had no known acting jobs or credits. She had been dating a man named Robert Manley, 
Now, a lot of people referred to him as Red, so that's what I will refer to him as in the podcast. He was a 25-year-old married salesman. On January 9th of 1947, Elizabeth returned home after taking a brief trip to San Diego with Red, and Red reportedly dropped her off at the Baltimore Hotel afterwards, and he stated that she was supposed to meet her sister. Some accounts say that they had seen her using the lobby telephone at the Baltimore Hotel and was allegedly seen with the patrons at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge, which was about 0.4 miles away from the Baltimore Hotel. That was the last time she was ever seen alive. Her body was discovered on January 15th of 1947 by Betty Bursinger, a local resident. She was found naked and bisected on a vacant lot on the west side of South Norton Avenue, which is midway between Coliseum Street and West 39th Street. Um, Now, at that time, that neighborhood was super underdeveloped, which would probably explain why no one really seen anything during the crime, I guess. Her body was found at about 10 a.m., while Betty was walking her three with her three-year-old daughter, and she originally thought it was a discarded mannequin. Tip for all of you, it's never a mannequin. When Betty finally realized that she had discovered a corpse, she immediately ran to a nearby house and called police. Here's where details come out, so if you're squeamish or have a weak stomach, go ahead and skip ahead. <laughs> so, um... Elizabeth's body was severely mutilated, being severed at the waist and completely drained of blood, like leaving her skin pallid white. Medical examiners determined that she had been dead approximately 10 hours, meaning she was murdered in the really late hours of January 14th or early morning hours of the 15th. According to reports, her killer had washed her body and her face uh, was slashed from the corners of her mouth up to her ears and that was basically creating the effect known as the Glasgow smile. She also had several cuts to her thighs and breasts like entire portions of flesh had been sliced away. The lower half of her body was positioned about a foot away from her torso and her intestines had been neatly tucked up underneath her bottom. Her body was posed um, with her hands up like over her head and her elbows bent at right angles and her legs were spread apart. During the discovery, passerby and reporters gathered and took photos of the crime scene and the body. Police found a heel print near the body next to tire impressions and a cement sack containing watery blood. An autopsy was performed on January 16th by Frederick Newbar, the coroner of Los Angeles County at the time. His report stated that Elizabeth was five foot two or five foot five inches, I'm sorry, 115 pounds, and had light blue eyes and badly decayed teeth. Ligature marks were found on her wrists, her ankles, and her neck, which would indicate she was being restrained. And an irregular laceration with superficial tissue loss was found on her right breast. 
Newbar indicated that he had found lacerations on her right forearm, her uh, left upper arm, and her right lower side of her chest. And the technique used to cut her in half was called, y'all bear with me because it's a very long word, (laughs) hemocorporectomy. Um, So basically that's literally where the body is cut in half perfectly. Um, And that technique was taught in the 1930s. Uh, Newbar reported that there was very little bruising at the incision site, which would indicate that it had been performed after death. He also noted a very gaping laceration. It was measuring about four inches that ran from about her belly button to like just above the pubic bone. And according to reports, she had suffered blows to the head but didn't have any skull fractures. Her official cause of death was determined to be cerebral hemorrhage. On February 2nd, 1947, just a fun little fact, and that was just like two weeks after her murder, Republican State Assemblyman C. Don Fields was prompted by the case to introduce a bill calling for the formation of sex offender registry. The state of California would become the first U.S. state to make the registration of sex offenders mandatory. I thought that was pretty neat. Elizabeth's fingerprints were sent off to the FBI, and luckily her prints were on file from her arrest in 1943 for, you know, underage drinking at that local bar. Um, Immediately after she was publicly identified, a reporter named William Randolph reportedly contacted her mother and told her that Elizabeth had won a beauty contest. It wasn't until he had pried as much personal information as he could out of Elizabeth's mother that he revealed to her that her daughter had actually been brutally murdered. I would have gone to prison. (laughs) Like, I'm only laughing because that, that, that makes me just a little bit upset. It's, that is the most disgusting thing. I swear, the most disgusting thing. They even offered to pay her airfare out to Los Angeles, but then kept her from police and other reporters to protect their quote-unquote scoop. Anyways, vile human beings. The Examiner and another Hearst newspaper, the Los Angeles Herald Express, later sensationalized the case with one article from the examiner describing the black tailored suit Elizabeth was last seen wearing as a quote tight tight skirt and sheer blouse end quote I can't with the lies I can't with the lies they'll do anything to get a headline anyways this is when media would dub her the black dahlia and described her as an adventuress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. In other words, they labeled her a prostitute, and then they deemed the murder as a, quote, sex fiend slaying. Ugh. People. People. On January 21st, a man claiming to be her killer contacted a man at the examiner and said that he had planned on eventually turning himself in, but was letting police pursue him further and that they could expect souvenirs of, quote, Beth Shorts, quote, in the mail. And on January 24th, a suspicious manila envelope 
was discovered by a postal worker that was addressed to the examiner and other Los Angeles papers. It had individual letters that were cut and pasted from what appeared to be a newspaper clipping and the message on the front of the envelope read, quote, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow, end quote. Inside the envelope was Elizabeth's birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book that had a man's name embossed on the cover, Mark Hansen. The packet, like her body, had been carefully cleaned, with, uh, which lead, led authorities to believe it came directly from her killer. Despite the packet being cleaned, several partial fingerprints were lifted from it, which were then sent to FBI for testing. But the prints were compromised in transit and could not be tested, of course. Also, on the same day that they received the envelope, a handbag and a suede shoe were reported to be seen atop a garbage can in an alley not far from Norton Avenue, about two miles from where her body was found. Police collected these items, but just like her body and the envelope, they had been cleaned, so no prints were found. Another letter was received by the examiner on January 26th that read, quote, Here it is, turning in Wednesday, January 29th. Had my fun at police, Black Dahlia Avenger, end quote. Police waited at the stated location where the killer allegedly said he would be turning himself in, but he never showed. Instead, at 1 p.m. that day, January 29th, the examiner received another letter, cut and pasted, that read, quote, Have changed my mind. You would not give me a square deal. Dahlia's killing was justified, end quote. I'm going to pause right here. We're going to take a short break and I will be back. I'm back. Okay, so of course the graphic nature of the murder and the letter started a media frenzy around Elizabeth's death. Local and national publications covered the story heavily, even reprinted the sensationalistic reports that had suggested that Elizabeth had been tortured for hours prior to her death. Of course, that was false information, but the authorities let it circulate to conceal the real cause of her death from the public. Now, I know a lot of people may not know the reasoning behind this, but a lot of the time false confessions come in when too much information is given out by press or police. So that these people confessing can somehow insert themselves into the investigation to get attention, which of course isn't okay at all, but that does happen. So there is reasoning behind why police withhold information in these cases. Reports even say that Elizabeth's personal life was publicized, including her alleged decline of Mark Hansen's romantic advances. Reports even say that a stripper who was acquainted with Elizabeth claimed that Elizabeth, quote, liked to get guys worked up over her and then leave them hanging dry, end quote. And this led police to speculate the possibility that Elizabeth could be a lesbian, 
leading them to questioning patrons and employees at local gay bars, but this claim remained unsubstantiated. The Herald Press received several letters from the suspected killer, and again, they were made from cut-and-pasted clippings, one of which read, quote, I will give up on Dahlia's killing if I get 10 years. Don't try to find me, end quote. On March 14th, an apparent suicide note scrawled in pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue, Venice. The note read, quote, to whom it may concern, I have waited for police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I am too much of a coward to turn myself in. So this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. End quote. The first thing that came to my mind was, who is Mary? Who is Mary? Anyways, moving on. The pile of clothing was first seen by a beach caretaker who reported the discovery to John Dillon. He was a lifeguard captain. Dylan immediately notified Captain L.E. Christensen of West Los Angeles Police Station. The clothes included a coat and trousers of blue herringbone tweed, a brown and white t-shirt, white jockey shorts, tan socks, and tan moccasin leisure shoes, size about eight. The clothes gave no clue about the identity of the owner. Police were quick to deem Mark Hansen as a suspect in the case, who was the owner of the black book found in the first letter sent to the papers. Hansen was a wealthy nightclub and theater owner and was an acquaintance of the friends that Elizabeth had stayed with. And according to some sources, Hansen had confirmed that the handbag and the shoe I mentioned earlier were Elizabeth's. And Elizabeth's friend and roommate had stated that Elizabeth had in fact rejected sexual advances from Mark, which would have given him motive to kill her. However, he was cleared of any suspicion in the case. In addition to Mark, the LAPD interviewed over 150 men who they believed could be potential suspects. Red, the last person known to see Elizabeth alive, was also interviewed but he too was cleared after passing several polygraphs. Even men listed in Mark's book were investigated. Over 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments assisted in the case, including the California State Patrol. Eventually, a reward of $10,000 was offered for any information leading to an arrest of her killer. Numerous people came in and made confessions, most of which police determined were false, and some of those people were charged with obstruction of justice. Again, people like to insert themselves where they don't belong, for attention, or money. When interviewed, lead investigator Captain Jack Donahue told the press that he believed Elizabeth's murder had taken place in a remote building or shack on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and her body transported into the city where it was disposed of. Based on the precise cuts and dissection of her corpse, the LAPD looked into the possibility that the murderer may have been a surgeon, doctor, or someone with medical knowledge, which, I mean, 
that makes sense. Like, if you read up on that procedure, like, it takes, like, a steady hand. Like, that's not no just cut straight through type thing. Because, like, she was bisected. So, you had to go through the spine. Like, it's a very complicated explanation. But it takes some skill. Anyways, back on it. Um, so because they thought maybe the person who did it had some sort of like medical knowledge or background in mid February of 1947, the LAPD served a warrant to the university of Southern California medical school, which was located near the site where Elizabeth's body had been discovered requesting a complete list of the program's students. The university agreed so long as the students' identities remained private. So, background checks were conducted, but they yielded absolutely no results. By the spring of 1947, Elizabeth's murder case had become cold, with very few leads. Sergeant Finnis Brown, one of the lead detectives on the case, blamed the press for compromising the investigation through reports, reporters probing of details and unverified reporting, which, I mean, is quite logical if you think about it. Most of those reporters were vicious vultures. Like, like they lied to her mom to get public or private information to disperse to the public about Elizabeth. Like, yeah, so no, I completely get that. Like, I see why he would think that. In the aftermath of the grand jury, further investigation was done on Elizabeth's past, with detectives tracing her movements between Massachusetts, California, and Florida, and also interviewed people who knew her in Texas and New Orleans. However, the interviews yielded no useful information in the murder. After her younger sisters had grown up and married, their mother, Phoebe, moved to Oakland to be near her daughter's grave. She finally returned to the East Coast in the 1970s, where she lived into her 90s. The Black Dahlia murder has been described as one of the most brutal and culturally enduring crimes in American history. The Time magazine listed it as one of the most infamous unsolved cases in the world. There has been many books and movies, both fictional and nonfiction, made based on Elizabeth's case. One popular fictional account of it was James Elroy's 1987 novel called The Black Dahlia, which in addition to the murder explored things such as crime, corruption, and paranoia of post-war Los Angeles. Elizabeth's case still remains unsolved to this day, which is super, super sad. Like, I mean, I know back then they didn't have all the fancy technology that we have nowadays. But if you were to look this up and look at how, just how brutal it was... Like, you can't even imagine. Like, even some reports had said, like, that, and this is, like, super detailed, that her her rectum was, like, dilated. I can't remember exactly the size that it was dilated to, but they said that it was dilated 
and that that was like a sign of sexual assault so they even like swabbed for um specimen but that came to nothing like there there's so many theories around this case and if you if you want like to see what theories have been said about the case and like what other um crimes or or murders that they tried to connect to this you can look on wikipedia um they have like a list of different murder cases and stuff that they thought maybe a serial killer was out there or one of murders in a state next door was similar and they tried to match that up i mean none of them really showed any results so but it was horrifying and i hate that her case still remains unsolved and the person that did it was never caught but elizabeth was laid to rest and buried at the mountain view cemetery in oakland and that's all i've got for today i hope you all enjoyed this if you did enjoy this episode please hit that subscribe or follow button to show me a little love you can listen to criminal beauty on anchor spotify google podcast radio public breaker pocket casts and now i'm on iHeartRadio. tune in every monday for another episode until next time stay safe friends